Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I was uh, thinking this morning about the time that we spent in Russia. Uh, Most of you know that we were missionaries in Russia for several years. And um, oddly enough, one of the reasons that I initially wanted to go to Russia was because I had seen video. This was back in the 90s. I had seen video and pictures of Russia, and I thought they looked like us. They lived kind of like us, and yet the gospel had been forcibly removed essentially for seven year, 70 years uh, during the Soviet Union. And, and uh, so that was part of what drew me there. And then, and then I actually moved there, and I realized that they may look like us, but life is very different in Russia, and the Russian way of thinking is very different from ours. And one of the things that stood out to me as being very different is that uh, you could live in Russia. Your family could live in Russia for two, three generations. You could be a professor of Russian, Russian language or Russian literature or history or something like that. But if your people came from somewhere other than Russia, you weren't Russian. I mean, you had a Russian passport, but, but you weren't Russian. And that always stood out to me. I, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't think in those terms. And I think being, uh, being an, an American, I can't, of course, speak for all Americans. There are a lot of us. But, um, but I don't think in, in terms of you're American or you're not American because, uh, because of where your family came from some generations in the past. I, that's just not the way I think. And so I, I always thought Russia was slightly odd in that regard. They could look at me and tell just by the structure of my face that I was not Russian. They could look at you and tell you're you're Bulgarian, right, or whatever, and they just can do that. And uh, so that that was an unusual thing to me. And I thought, ah, it's not like America. And then I moved back to the states and came back to Fallon, and this is where I grew up. And uh, moved here when I was nine, and lived here until I graduated high school and moved away. And and uh, but then I started realizing that. It can take a while to become a Fallonite, too. You don't just move to town and, and, and then you're a Fallonite, right? You ask, you know, I ask people, and I, I sort of do it jokingly, are, are you a Fallonite? And, uh, and, and then I ask, or have you lived here long enough to be a Fallonite yet? And sometimes the answer is no, I haven't. Well, how long have you lived here? 20 years, right? It can take a while to become local, right? And so we do actually have those distinctions, and we do actually think in terms, not, not identically to the way Russians think about it, but uh, we do think in terms of um, cracking into the inner circle and becoming an insider versus an outsider and things like that. We do think in those terms, and that is, that is a part of our condition that we have here too. And so uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we're going to address that issue, and we're going to see how... God addressed that issue of being an outsider versus being an insider in uh, in the New Testament. And by the way, if you have small children, I would encourage you to grab one of these devotions, uh, one of these bulletins on the way in. And actually, frankly, if if you got by Dale McCarter and didn't get one, then you succeeded. You 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 did something that he didn't intend for you to do because it's his goal for every child to have one of these. And so it's a, it's a bulletin uh, similar to yours, but but it's geared towards kids. And so there's language in here that they can understand, and there are word searches, and there are other things that will keep them kind of engaging with the sermon. You'll see key words on the front, and they can count how many times I say, you know, it's not on the front, it's on page two. How many times I say unclean, for example. 
That, that's one, if you're keeping track. And the kid can keep track. And there are questions in there. There's a devotional written on the back that you could go and look through each day of the week. And so that's a, a resource that we have that's available. And Dale does a good job of getting them into people's hands. But uh, that's what that is for. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 10, we're going to cover this section today and what the Lord does with the new church and how he addresses the issues of insiders and outsiders and clean and unclean. Let me pray for us before we start. Father, we come to your word this morning and we are grateful that you have given it to us. Grateful that you have worked in your church over the years, that you have revealed yourself, that we don't have to grope around and have imaginings and and, uh, thinking of uh, fantasizing about what you might be like or uh, philosophizing, but you tell us. You communicate to us in your word. We thank you and we praise you for that. We thank you that you have called us who would be outsiders to be insiders, to be actually your children, that you would place your name on us, that you would adopt us as your own. We thank you and praise you for that. This morning as we open your word and we read about how that came about and how you worked in Peter's life and in the life of Cornelius and others in the early church. Help us to be sensitive to what you have for us. Help us to be responsive to what you tell us. Help us to be all here and not distracted by something that goes on outside or what happened before or what will come after or anything else. Help us to be right here and engage with your word. I pray that you'd work in our hearts by your spirit. Be glorified in this time and build us up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've called this sermon, No One Common or Unclean. That's because that's part of what the message that Peter gets is, and I want us to get it. There's, a, there's kind of a theme as we read through this passage. I want you to think about this, uh, this sentence, that the kingdom of God is for all kinds of people. It's not exclusive to one people group, one geographical location, or one uh, heredity or something like that, one ethnicity. The kingdom of God is for all kinds of people. Our passage today is going to, uh, to deal with that very thing. We're going to be talking about a man named Cornelius, and Cornelius was a Gentile. And that means that in the Jewish way of thinking, he was on the outside. He, he, uh, he was, in, in, uh, in some language, he's considered a dog, right? He's not even worth the, the attention of the believing community. And uh, that's kind of the way the, uh, the Jews ended up thinking about we Gentiles. And most of us, probably in this room, maybe, maybe all of us are Gentiles. And so we would have been on the outside looking in if we even cared to look in. And so we're going to read about Cornelius and the situation that he was in and what comes from that. We're going to see, we're going to start in chapter 10 and start in verse 1, and we're going to see barriers removed because there had been barriers erected. God had established the nation of Israel. He had called out Abraham and he had formed the nation of Israel for the purpose of bringing to us the Savior. The nation of Israel was a vehicle to deliver to us the Savior, who was to be the Savior of all men, not just Israel but Gentiles also. And so we're going to read about this man, Cornelius, starting in chapter 10 and verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. 
a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And so here we're introduced to Cornelius. And he's a very interesting man. He was a Gentile and he was a soldier and he was, a, he was an officer in the Roman military. And so he was in a position of command and had some authority. And here he's a devout man. We see that he's, he's not terrorizing the countryside and things like that. He's a devout man and he, and he fears God and he gives money to, to those who need money. He's supporting uh, the, uh, the poor and, and he's, he's got a good reputation. He prays. He's a good man. But he's a Gentile. And so there he is on the outside looking in, excluded from those who are on the inside. And then this angel come and comes and appears to him and, and says, uh, send to Joppa, and it, which is where we left Peter in the last time, and says, grab Simon, who's also called Peter, and he's staying with another guy named Simon who's a tanner who lives by the sea, so he gets kind of some directions, and says, bring them back to you, call him to you, so send for him. And so God speaks to him, God speaks to him directly and uh, through, through the message, messenger of this angel and tells him that uh, he's going to do something. And so here we have a man, this Cornelius, he was ripe for the gospel. He was one who, uh, who feared God. We're going to see that he didn't know about Christ, and he wasn't a saved man, but he feared God. But he was on the outside looking in. And, and uh, so if we step back for a second and look at Cornelius, we can see that God is already working in him to draw him to himself. He's ripe for the gospel. He just needs to hear it. And so we have that devout Gentile. Well, then we have a vision. So we cut away from him. Uh, Cornelius has sent messengers to go and get Peter. And then we cut away from him and we see uh, Peter's vision there in uh, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, which is noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. And so we, here we have this situation with Peter. 
Peter, who's about to receive guests from Cornelius, who was unclean and someone who's on the outside. And he has this vision and, and this sheet is being lowered down and it's got all different kinds of animals and birds and reptiles, all kinds of, of creatures on this sheet and it's being lowered down. And what does, what does the Lord say to him? The same word we talked about last week. Rise, Peter. Move, get up, kill and eat. And so Peter gets the message that he's supposed to kill and eat these, but there are a lot of unclean animals there. And Peter had grown up as a Jew. He knew his Old Testament and he knew the dietary restrictions that they had as a result of being Jewish. And so they couldn't eat pork, for example. They couldn't eat all manner of different kinds of creatures. And those things are spelled out in the Old Testament law. And Peter had never eaten that kind of stuff. It was part of his religion. It was part of what he believed. And so he had never had bacon for breakfast, which is too bad. But he never had. And he, he, he thought that was a good thing, which is also too bad. But, and here it was. All, all of this food that was unclean. Why, you ever wonder why those laws were given? Laws about clean and unclean food? I mean, it's, it's food after all. You hear ideas about, you know, ideas of health and maybe, you know, these, these kinds of animals carry disease. They're more likely to, to carry disease because of the types of animals they are and things like that. Well, possibly. There's some of that maybe going on there. But there's a larger message going on. There's a larger message about clean and unclean foods. See, the nation of Israel was called out. They were called to be separate and distinct from the world around them, the nations around them. And they were taken into a land and they were told specifically, don't live like your neighbors. Don't worship their idols. Don't act like them. Certainly don't intermarry with them. And don't eat like them. Don't eat like them. You are to be distinct. You are to be separate as the nation of Israel. You are to be set apart. And so the dietary restriction was one form of them being set apart. Their clothing was another. The way they worshipped was another. Uh, their, their expectations in marriage and all those kinds of things. They were set apart in every way from the people around them because God was trying to demonstrate that He is holy and His people, like Him, are holy. They're distinct and set apart. And so that was the law given in the Old Testament. And here you have Peter who knew all of that. And Jesus appears to him and says, you see all these unclean animals? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter apparently thinks it's a test. And he says, oh, Lord, far be it from me. I would never do that. I would, I would never break your law that way. I would never eat this unclean food. And what's Jesus' response? What God has declared to be clean, don't you dare call common. Don't you call it unclean. If God has made it clean. And so there's Peter. It's lunchtime. People, you know, they're cooking downstairs or whatever. And he can kind of smell the food. He's getting hungry, right? And he falls into a trance and he has a vision about food, right? About food that, that has always been unclean for the Jew. And now it's been declared to be clean. And so Peter was wondering about this. What, what does this mean? I mean, Jesus spoke to me and showed me this vision. And not only showed me the vision, showed me the vision three times. So it came down, the conversation happened, it went up. It, it happened three times, right? Meaning it's for sure. This isn't just a passing fancy. This thing is for sure. It's going to happen. And so you can almost feel the anticipation. After the third time, Peter was thinking, okay, so I believe it. Now what? Now what's going to happen? And right when he's in that situation, when he's thinking, now what's going to happen? What does this even mean? He hears a holler from the gate. Hey, is there a guy named Peter here? 
We've been sent because of a vision from God. And so you see that this vision is very timely, that God himself is preparing Peter, who is God's messenger. He's the leader of the apostles. God is preparing Peter to go and address this issue of those who were unclean and now be, will, will, will be declared to be clean. And Jesus says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we have a timely vision, and that's followed by a surprising unity. I'm going to read from 17 uh, down for a couple of paragraphs. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold... Three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius tells him the story. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so we have this surprising unity that Peter would be willing. Peter, who who had been raised to consider the Gentiles to be outsiders, to be unclean, and, and not even to associate with them. Here he, he receives them, has a discussion with them, and invites them in to be his guests. That's a sign of acceptance. He invited them in to be guests. Maybe that's, you know, it's a controlled environment. You get to bring people into your household, and, and certainly your household's clean, right? And, and you can bring people in and, and kind of be uh, unstained, or, uh, you, you know, you get to control the environment of what's going on. But then Peter goes with them, and he goes into Cornelius' house. He goes into that environment. He enters into that context where it's not clean, where he doesn't have control over what's going on, where things might be said that he doesn't want to hear, or things might be eaten that he doesn't want to eat. He might see things he doesn't want to see, but he goes into that context. 
he enters into that context. And so Peter has learned his lesson from the vision, which he probably initially thought was about food. And he sees that this isn't just about food. This is about you and me, Gentile. This is about God taking those who had been outsiders and breaking down that barrier and saying, Peter, go see him. Go talk to him. Go share the gospel with him. And so that's what happens. It's a very surprising unity if you know the history of the Old Testament and you know the history even of the church to this point that, that the church had kind of been uh, staying there in Jerusalem and had only, had only slowly branched out at all as a result of persecution. And we see Philip surprisingly go and talk to the Samaritans who were sort of like cousins. They weren't Gentiles. They were Samaritans. They were relatives. And so we see Philip go to them and the gospel go to them. And we see the Holy Spirit go to them. Salvation comes to them. And then we see the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. Surely he's a Gentile. And yet we see that he had been traveling to Jerusalem. He had gone there for the purpose of worship. It seems like he had gone maybe to a feast there. He actually had a copy of the scroll of Isaiah in his hand. So he's, he's trying to enter into Judaism. Here we have a man who perhaps might be some kind of proselyte, perhaps might be moving towards being a convert to Judaism to one degree or another. And so he's not really entirely outside the pale. He, he's kind of his own little, little area there. Not only that, when he was saved, where did he go? Down to Ethiopia. He didn't stay in the local church. He didn't stay in the area. And here we have Cornelius, who is clearly a Gentile who has no connection with Judaism, who is, who is not a proselyte, is not worshiping in the temple. He's a full-on Gentile. And Peter is sent to him. And so we have this barrier being removed. And, and for us, it might not be all that shocking, but for someone who was raised in this sort of condition where there's an us versus them mentality, where there are the insiders who are the Jews and the outsiders who are the, the dogs, the Gentiles, and, and ministry happens here. And there were even times when Jesus, for his own reasons, was saying, no, right now we're going to minister to the Gentile, or to, to the Jews, not yet to the Gentiles. And so for them, everything was kind of in-house. And then this vision appears, this vision that seems to be about food, but it's really about Cornelius and it's really about you and me. And you see that Peter gets the message that God is calling us clean, no longer unclean. The idea of clean and unclean in the Old Testament had to do with whether you could draw near and worship or not, whether you could come into the temple and participate in worship or not, that there might be ritual things that you had done that weren't sin per se, even if you were a good Jew, there were certain things that you might have done. Maybe you, you had to bury a family member where well, you had touched a dead body and therefore you couldn't go into the temple and worship until a certain period of time had passed. So being unclean means that you're barred from drawing near to worship. It's not necessarily or primarily a sin issue. Often it wasn't a sin issue. And so what is happening here is that unclean status, which was true of all Gentiles, the Gentiles could not draw near to worship without sort of becoming Jews, that was being removed. What God has called clean, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we have barriers removed and we continue on with our story and we see that the gospel is revealed. I'm going to read verses 34 uh, down through 43. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. 
As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so we have him proclaiming the gospel. Peter understands the situation, comes into that context, and he proclaims the gospel. You'll notice that he started off preaching about the life and ministry of Christ. It's interesting that he said that you yourselves know what all went on. The ministry of Jesus was was well known. He performed miracles. He fed thousands of people with a few, you know, loaves of bread. And he healed people and brought people back from the dead, you know, and, and made blind men to see. And so his ministry was well known. But they didn't understand the significance. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't understand the significance. What I want us to notice in this context is that the gospel really is rooted in history. If what Peter was saying about Jesus had been untrue, that Jesus really hadn't gone around doing miracles, really hadn't gone around uh, preaching the gospel, if he hadn't really been a good man, Cornelius, that Peter says, you know these things, Cornelius could have said, nah, actually, that's not how it happened. Yeah, he was a good teacher, but he never did anything miraculous. Right? So Cornelius could have belied that claim by Peter, but instead Cornelius understands, he knows the truth. And for us, 2,000 years removed from the ministry of Jesus, it's important for us to remember that our faith is rooted in history. It's rooted in events that actually took place. We're not gathered here to tell one another good stories that make us feel better about ourselves. We're not, we're not gathered here so that we can have a fantasy in common that, uh, that, that might give us hope for life or something like that. We're gathered here to worship a Jesus who lived and walked on this earth. And not in a private place. Our faith is rooted in history. It can be proven. It can be demonstrated. And so we see that the life and ministry of Christ is a big focus of what he's talking about there. That Jesus, in his manner of life and in his ministry, he, he, he was strikingly obedient. He was shockingly obedient to the Father with some of the things that he did and some of the things he said. And that was well known about him. And that's because the character of God is most fully and most clearly revealed in Christ himself. And so he points to the life of Jesus, talking about who he was and that they were aware of him. He moves on and talks about the death of Christ. You, you can't preach the gospel without talking about the death of Christ. The, the essence, the heart of the Christian faith is not that Jesus was a good teacher or that he taught certain things or that he gave an ethic that we're supposed to follow after or that he's our hero or our leader or something like that. The essence of Christianity comes down to the death of Christ in your place. 
That's what it comes down to. And so Peter knows that. He's very well aware that the death of Christ is crucial and central to the message of the gospel. That Christianity is not about following an ethic. It's not about following a leader. It's not about doing certain things. Christianity primarily and at its root is about Jesus Christ himself offering his own life as a substitute for his own children. That in him and because of his death, because of him offering himself, because of him dying, bearing the wrath of God, those who are in Christ don't have to die under the wrath of God. We'll still die physically. We don't bear the wrath of God. Jesus did for us. And so Peter preaches the death of Christ and we must preach the death of Christ. And, and we need to think about that. And we need to ponder that, that the only way we could be made right before God is for Jesus himself to die in our place. The death of Christ is central, but he wasn't left dead. He was raised from the dead. And Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ. That, that God actually is giving his stamp of approval to all the things that Jesus taught. All the things that Jesus said. Jesus' own character. Jesus said some big things about himself. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. He said, I and the Father are one. And, and the people listening to him understood that he was claiming to be one with the Father. And so certainly if God didn't like that message... If Jesus were lying, God wouldn't have raised him from the dead. But God gives his stamp of approval by raising Jesus from the dead. That yes, the things that Jesus taught are true. And not only that, but that the Father had accepted Jesus' sacrifice in our place. That his death was not final. It was not the end for him. His payment for sin had been accepted and death was unable to hold him. God raised him from the dead. And so the resurrection is crucial and it's a vital part of the gospel. And we need to think about that. And finally, the hope that we have in Jesus' resurrection, that we who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. There will be a time of resurrection for us where we are raised to glory. We will be with Jesus forever in eternity. And so resurrection is a hope that is ours uh, for those of us who are in Christ because of the resurrection of the dead. Look down at verse 43. I want you to notice the beginning of this verse to begin with. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. All the prophets bear witness to this fact. All the prophets bear witness to Christ. So when you're doing your Old Testament reading and you're reading through Ezekiel, ultimately Ezekiel is pointing to Christ. You're reading through Leviticus, of all places. Leviticus is pointing ultimately to Christ. Everything that you read in the Old Testament is building up towards, is pointing towards Christ. And that's what Peter is saying right here. To him all the prophets bear witness about faith in Christ. And so when you read your Old Testament, when you're reading your Bible, look for how it's pointing to Christ. Sometimes it's in subtle ways. Sometimes it's in very obvious and clear ways. But it is always pointing to Christ. And therefore, by the way, our message to one another always needs to point to Christ. Always. When we're encouraging someone, if, if we have a brother or sister maybe who's in sin, or maybe they, they need to get some area of their life straightened out, or, or maybe they just need encouragement, it should be in Christ. It should be pointing towards Christ. Finding our hope in Him. Finding our reconciliation with God in Him. Finding our reconciliation with one another in Christ. We're not here to preach an ethic. We're not here to follow a leader. We're not here because uh, we think Jesus is our hero. He is our hero. He is our leader. 
we are following him and there is a Christian ethic. We are here because of Christ. And so we need to point to him. And that's what he says there in 43. Uh, He talks about those who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Here this message is to Cornelius, who seems like a good guy. And I'm sure he was a very good guy. By all accounts, he was a good guy. This is the guy you want, you know, as your neighbor or running for president, right? He's a good guy. And yet he needs forgiveness of his sins as well. And that forgiveness is only found by faith in Christ, by looking to Christ and trusting for him, trusting in him for what he has done on your behalf, that you might have forgiveness. And so we have the gospel proclaimed. We also have Pentecost revisited. We're going to continue on reading here, starting in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The same Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who back in in Acts chapter 2, the church had received when, when the gospel was proclaimed. The church received the Spirit. And before that, while the apostles and, and the, the, the young uh, group of followers of Christ were gathered together worshiping in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the Spirit fell upon them. This is the same Spirit who had been promised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That Spirit, the very same Spirit, not a different one, not a, not, a, not a Gentile spirit, but the same spirit comes and he indwells these same believers, the, these Gentile believers. And so it would have been amazing to see that the things that happened back in Acts chapter 2 that Peter would have been remembering, he sees happening right here amongst Gentiles. There's no difference. We see the same spirit, but we also see the same tongues. Look at 45 and 46. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So they saw not only that the Spirit had fallen upon these new believers, but also that they showed the same demonstration of that as the brand new believers, the brand new Jewish believers back in Acts chapter 2. The same evidence was given. Just as the evidence was given, which had been prophesied from the Old Testament, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon His people in a new way, from from, uh, Joel that uh, Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2, when that happens, tongues will be involved. There will be an an evidence of prophesying when this happens because the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And now Peter, who remembered that, participated in that, preached on that day, saw 3,000 come to Christ. Now he's preaching to a small group of Gentiles and he sees the Holy Spirit fall on them and he sees them begin to speak in tongues also. And so here you have evidence that the Holy Spirit has not only gone to Jews, not only gone to Samaritans, not only gone to proselytes to the faith, but to Gentiles. And now the Holy Spirit has come to Gentiles because they see the same tongues. The kingdom of God is evident amongst this new group of people as well. And we see in 47 and 48 the same baptism. Can anyone withhold... So then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So the baptism that had come to the new believers in Acts chapter 2 when those who had trusted Christ were baptized and there were about 3,000 number, 3,000 souls added that day. That same baptism that happened then with the Jews is now happening with the Gentiles. 
And so we've called this, I've called this Pentecost Revisited. Pentecost, which was for the Jews originally, has now been visited to the Gentiles. We see that the kingdom of God is expanding, not just to the the inward group here, but expanding beyond to include even people like you and me who would otherwise have been on the outside. Notice here also that that, uh, that baptism is the expected response. The New Testament doesn't know anything about unbaptized believers. It's, It's just not here. When someone believes, they are baptized. And even in this case, Peter commanded it. And so I think that's instruction for us, who, for, for us who believe in Christ, that we need to be baptized as well. We need to, to show, to demonstrate by our outward step of behavior of being baptized in the name of Christ, that we are his followers, that we are in Christ, that, that we have received him by faith and, and we have that new life in him. And so my encouragement, my exhortation to you, is that if you're, if you're a believer in Christ and you've not been baptized, you need to be. And we would be happy to, to do that for you. We're desirous to do that for you. So come, come talk to me or come talk to Chris or, uh, or anyone who's up here serving communion about that. And we will, we will uh, talk about the gospel and we'll talk about your faith and we will talk about baptism. So that's really our first takeaway. Our second takeaway from our passage is the status of non-Christian religions. So here you have Cornelius, who was a very good guy, but did not know Christ. And he had to know Christ so that he could be forgiven of his sins. We, we live in a community of very good people. Now, there are people who are not so good. I realize some of you are more aware of that than others. But there are a lot of good people in our community who don't know Christ. They do not have forgiveness of their sins. They're good people, and you would love to have them as your neighbor. And you would probably vote for them for president but they do not have forgiveness of sins in Christ. They need to hear the gospel just like Cornelius did. And that's one of the reasons God has given us the gospel. We have the opportunity to take that to others. But the status of non-Christian religions is that they are not saving. Those people will die in their sins. There's another takeaway, and that's the power of the gospel. I love... Peter's preaching here. He's preaching the gospel and you can kind of, he's getting, you know, maybe worked up. It's not in the text. I did. That's my, I'm thinking he's, you know, he loves to preach the gospel and here he's doing that and he gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit falling on the congregation, them being saved and beginning to speak in tongues. And he's not even done with his message. Probably, you know, he'd like probably had a couple more points. It was the gospel that saved people. The gospel is what saves. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says in Romans chapter one, and that's why we proclaim the gospel. Because it's that gospel that saves. We Christians need to be reminded. We need to think about it. We need to encourage each other with the gospel. And unbelievers need to hear it. It is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And we see that happen right here. And in later accounts of, of this event, we see made more explicit that they, they, they believed, they trusted the message. And that's implicit in what's going on here. Everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. And boom, you have this whole group. They trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They have forgiveness of sins. That's the power of the gospel, and that's why we proclaim it. That's why we remind ourselves of it. You may be sitting here and you're thinking about yourself that you're beyond the pale. That even though though the gospel has come to Gentiles... And therefore, there's no us versus them. There's no insider-outsider. There's no clean-unclean distinction. Yet you're thinking, wow, but really, I am unclean. Really, I am on the outside. 
If you're thinking that, if you're thinking that you're beyond the pale, that there is that barrier, there is hope in this message. Cornelius, a man who was on the outside, and all of those around him, people who were on the outside, who were called unclean, Jesus said about them, they're clean. The gospel is for them too. They also can draw near to worship. And that's my encouragement to you if you think that is you beyond the pale. You also can draw near to worship by faith in Christ. You too can have forgiveness of your sins. There's another takeaway that I want us to notice here, and that's unity within the church. I I made the mention earlier about the Ethiopian eunuch going on home to Ethiopia. And so there wouldn't have been a struggle in the local church about this Gentile who's trying to worship with these Jewish Christians and how does that work and that's not a good thing and and them having to wrestle through that. But with Cornelius and his family and all those connected, they're right there. There was probably a church there. There was probably a church that they went to. How were they going to be received? Was there going to be unity within the body or was there going to be some sort of a distinction that, yeah, you're, I mean, you're a Christian, but you're, you're, you're the dog type of Christian, so why don't you sit over there? Or why don't you come to the later service or something? There's unity. This happens to demonstrate very clearly that that barrier between clean and unclean, that barrier between us and them has been removed. That doesn't mean all people are saved. That means the gospel can go to all and all are able to draw near. And so, church, we also need to be unified. We are one body in Christ. We are not uh, divided up the way the way uh, uh, the Russians do. With this is your background, and so you're that kind of. The Russians don't divide up the church this way, but the way their culture is divided up. You have this kind of background, and therefore these things are true about you. And we don't really fellowship with your type of Christian. And that's not the way it is. We are one body in Christ. And so that brings us to our communion table that, uh, that we come to today. This is an opportunity. It's called communion. There are a couple of aspects going on there. Primarily, it's our union with Christ. Because of what he's done for us, we can be uh, uh, in Christ. And we who are in Christ, we get to celebrate that communion with Christ of being in him. And therefore, his death, uh, being in place of our death and his life, giving us life. And, and all of those things, we celebrate with the elements. But if we are in Christ, if we are primarily celebrating our communion with Him, our union with Him, that also means we are all who are in Christ unified in Him together. And so it's an important lesson for us to to learn from our passage today about being unified in Christ. So this is a time of celebration. This is a time when we get to Remember and celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is a joyous time. This is, this is a celebration of us uh, having been on the outside and being brought in. Having forgiveness of sins in Christ. That, that God didn't, didn't say, ah, you're too unclean. Uh, you're, you stay out there, dog. He brought the gospel to us. He saved us. He gave, he gave us forgiveness of sins. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us one body. We get to celebrate that when we come together. And so there's great joy here. I'm not celebrating that I've been a great Christian this week. I'm not celebrating that I really followed the ethic or that I really followed the leader well this week. I'm celebrating that Jesus Christ has died in my place. And therefore, because of that, I have union with Him. I have peace with God. I have forgiveness of sins.
But sometimes, believers, there's something we bring to this. And I want you to think about this. We are celebrating our union with Christ. Is there some disunion? Is there some division between you, Christian, and another Christian? Especially in this church? Where you're, you're, you're thinking in your mind, yes, I'm, I'm unified with Christ. I have union with Him. I'm going to celebrate that with the Lord's Supper. But the, the person sitting next to me or across the room, because I wouldn't dare sit near them, is, is uni, uh, unified with Christ also. And so we're celebrating this together. But no, I don't have union with them. If that's you, I want to challenge you that we're not really understanding communion. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, actually, that you need to leave your offering. You need to put off drawing near to worship, even in this regard is how I'm applying it, until you get that addressed with that brother or sister. This is similar to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about this, about this union, about us being unified. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were on the outside, Gentile. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we celebrate that. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. And we celebrate that. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is a very great union on that grand scale of Jew versus Gentile. We dare not bring disunity into those who are in the body of Christ and reintroduce that. And so, as we come to communion today and we're celebrating our union with Christ, we're celebrating Jesus dying on our behalf, I am not saying that Jesus didn't die for that sin of disunity. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you have that sort of disunity with a brother or sister, and you come and celebrate communion, you're ignoring a large part of what communion means because we commune with the Lord and thus we commune together. And so if you're in that situation, maybe there's a, maybe there's a, uh, you've got a heartburn with someone that you need to deal with, let the elements pass and go deal with it. That's a tough thing. But it's, it's an important thing and it's an important part of what it means to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And so I want you to think about that in, in regard to the Lord's table this morning. The Lord's table is for Christians. It's for those who are celebrating being in Christ. 
And so this is not for everyone. This is for believers. And so if you don't know Christ, I, I want to talk to you. First of all, I'd love to have a conversation with you and share the gospel and, and talk about the things we talked about this morning. But if that's you and you don't know Christ, let the elements pass. If that's you, Christian, and you have some sort of heart disunity going on where, where you've got a broken relationship, you need to mend that relationship. Please let the elements pass until such time as you've been able to do that. So if the men who are serving communion would come forward, I would appreciate it. And we're going to celebrate this together. So we come to the elements and we have representation. We have the bread representing the body of Christ. We have the blood or the the cup which represents the blood of Christ. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to preach to one another. We're going to rejoice in our unity with Jesus through his death until the Lord comes. And so first we come to the bread. And so men, if you could, if you could uh, grab the bread. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come here today to uh, commemorate, to remind ourselves of, and to remind one another of your death on our behalf your body offered in place of ours, that we we commemorate with the bread, broken and crushed, and you offered yourself in our place. I, I deserved to be there. I deserved to be under the wrath of God. And yet you, Jesus, were there in my place. I thank you for this symbolism, what, what this means the body of Christ offered in my place for the place of everyone who is in Christ so that you might pay the penalty for us. Thank you and we praise you and we remember and we remind one another and we celebrate even as we partake of this bread. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.